Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are my friend, a married couple, Deborah and Richard McClendon. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll give a brief bio and just a brief introduction, and then we'll put quit pretty quickly turn it over to the McClendons. This is a podcast centered around the book, a book they wrote at Deseret Book called Commitment to the Covenant. And that's just part of the title. It's a wonderful book about strengthening marriages. So this is a podcast about strengthening marriages, which is something all marriages need insights from experts in the field. And so Deborah and Richard, I'll just introduce Richard. Richard works at BYU. I'll let him share what he does at BYU. He's been there 20 years, plus another 10 years um, in the CES system. So he's just spent his whole career serving other people. He has a PhD in sociology from BYU, recently released as a as a resident bishop here in Mapleton. We're recording from their home just above the fog on a beautiful... Are we in Mapleton? No, we're not in Mapleton. We're in Woodland. <laughs> Woodland Hills. Wow. We are in Woodland Hills, listeners. So all of you that are familiar with this area, we got to get the geography right. We're in Woodland Hills. And um, Deborah McClelland is here with us. Um, she was in episode 191, where we talked about scrupulosity. And I encourage our listeners to um, go to that episode. That's been a fascinating episode. And so many people have reached out to my wife and I about that episode, in, which is religious OCD. Um, Deborah is in private practice. She has a PhD in um, clinical psychology from BYU. Um, they are the parents of five children. And they are both PhDs, so that probably adds some cool things about your marriage. Oh, yes. Richard will continuously let me know that his religion, social his social science is the true social science, and we enjoy some banter about that. So, Deborah, even though I gave a little bio, will you just give us, if there's anything more you want to share about your history or your story, your education, or even if you want to touch on this podcast about scrupulosity, then I'll give Richard the same chance and then we'll kind of get into our topic. Sure. Um, it's kind of an open-ended. Yeah. Maybe well, that's too well, open-ended. It, it might seem odd that I hear we're talking about a book about marriage. And yet in, in uh, my private practice, I'm specializing in religious OCD. So this book was really born from the experiences of a stay-at-home mom. Yes, I had a PhD, but I, I had three very small children that were all in diapers at the same time. And I wanted a little more professional experience. And so I wasn't seeing a lot of clients at the time. And Richard and I feel very passionately about marriage because of our histories. I came into our marriage as a divorced single mom of two daughters. And he came in as a 45-year-old bachelor. This is cool. So imagine being 24 years after your LDS mission in this church as a single man. And so he and I are very passionate about marriage because we each come in from a very different perspective, feeling like we cannot take our marriage for granted. And so we began by writing an article for the book called By Divine, De by Divine Design, edited by Brent Top about commitment in marriage and LDS marriage and divorce. And then we began teaching at BYU Education Week. And then it grew from there. Education Week participants informed us and shared with us and we shared with them. And the book just grew and grew. And we spent five years getting this book from that first article all the way to publication. Um, it's, it's a lot of stuff. It's 400 pages thick. 
but it's a lot of fun too. We've got all of the nerdy research in there because we're nerds. Um, but we have all the LDS doctrine as well as our own personal marriage stories and marriage stories of other people who have donated their stories anonymously. So we are exceedingly passionate about marriage. We continue to give a, a presentation on the book at BYU Education Week every, um, it's the third week of every August. And we do that. And so that continues to be a passion of ours. And we give presentations to other groups as well, even though in my clinical work, I'm, I have another focus. Uh, we're all got to keep working at our marriages every day. And we know that we can't take our marriages for granted. We have to do our marriages on purpose. Richard, any yeah. just share a little bit about your history, any just, um, just things you would like to share as introduction. You bet. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, I uh, got a PhD at BYU in sociology, and I focused uh, my area on both religion and marriage uh, and family. And so um, that was all before Deborah and I met, and I had the opportunity to um, spend a lot of time reflecting and, and working towards marriage myself, obviously, after uh, 20 plus years of being single. Uh, I was always trying to prepare myself for marriage um, and dated quite a bit, um, but uh, a lot of first yeah, dates. A lot of first <laughs> dates, right? Uh, but finally, the opportunity came, and Deborah and I uh, met, and uh, we learned quite a bit together in terms of of our marriage, and 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 there were a lot of challenging times those first couple of years, and so we'll talk about that pretty in a minute. But one of the things that helped me quite a bit was the opportunity to to get the background in sociology, to learn and understand what marriage is, what's going on. Marriage is in the decline. It's been on decline for quite a bit. Um, a lot of st the statistics and uh, a lot of the uh, numbers, if you look at how it's, uh, it's been declined, we know that um, at the same time, marriage is one of the greatest benefits in life. And there's a, there's a ton of research out there that talks about how um, you know, if you're married, you, you have lower depression, lower anxiety, uh, lower suicide rates, um, and, and you have higher uh, happiness scales. I mean, there's so many things that are out there with marriage. And so Deborah and I, as we got to talking about this and as we presented, we realized that we both have certain unique skills and training uh, from our backgrounds. And we felt like we could really, uh, we could really put something together that would be a marvelous book. And so, um, uh, as, as we've talked, one of our first, um, uh, presentations at BYU, we had a guy come up to us, uh, from, uh, one of the local publishing companies. And he said, Hey, have you guys ever considered putting a book together on this information? It would be unique in the sense that you both have PhDs, you have backgrounds that would be really valuable to be able to provide this. And so we got to talking about it and we thought through it. And as Deborah said, it took us about five years to put something together, but uh, we feel like it's a valuable thing. One of the things I love about the book is, is that it's very raw in the sense that we share our own stories uh, in the book. And, uh, and also Deborah was able to uh, contact a lot of people anonymously to, to get some of their stories in about how to, uh, from in terms of illustrating the principles of the book. So it's a very unique book that way. Um, Tell our listeners yeah. just the full name of the book and yeah. three the full name of the book where they could find it, uh -huh. and and the audience for the reader who what's the audience as far as who you feel the book is supposed to reach? Yeah, so uh, 
uh, the, the full title is Commitment to the Covenant, uh, Strengthening the Me, We, and Thee of Marriage. And what that means is, is we divide the book into three parts. The first third of the book talks about the me in marriage. And that what that represents is, uh, what can I do, regardless of my spouse, what can I do to help this marriage uh, grow and thrive? And uh, that those areas include commitment, and that's an important thing that we've lost in society today, is just in, not just in marriage, but in general. And so we really focus on what it means to be committed in, to, in marriage. We talk about resilience in marriage, and we talk about forgiveness in marriage. That's the first three areas. And I can do all three of those things regardless of my spouse. I can be committed, I can, have, I can develop resilience, and I can, I can learn to forgive. And with those three areas, then that's the me. That's what I can do. Uh, the we in marriage is typically the things that most marriage books talk about. Uh, th- those are finances, uh, the things that you have to work together on, uh, that you need to, to be a, a companionship to, right? So uh, emotional, intimacy, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, right? Yeah. And communication and conflict. Communication and conflict, right. So those are, that's the second uh, third of the book. And then the final part is bringing the the into the marriage, which is how do we bring God into the marriage? And so we focus on, um, on the Word of God, on personal and couple scripture study and prayer, the importance of those, what the prophets have said about them. Uh, and then the, we also talk about prophets themselves, how valuable are prophets, and what does that mean, and how, why there's safety and counsel when it comes to listening to the prophets and bringing those, those, those prophets in our marriage and the, the things that they've said. And then the, the last chapter in the book focuses on um, the ordinances. ordinances and covenants in the gospel, how baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost and, and uh, faith and repentance connect marriage and how it improves marriage. And then the ordinances of the priesthood and, those, and then the temple ordinances. Uh, but I want to just say one other thing. What we did do is, because Deborah is a clinical psychologist, we added an appendix chapter that talks about um, mental health in marriage and, and uh, provides a, a tremendous amount of tools for, for married couples to be able to, if they have a, a spouse that has struggled with mental health, how to go about working with that spouse. It's, it's really a therapy 101 chapter. Cool. You know, what is mental illness? How do we get help if we need it? What kind of therapist would we need? Do we need an LDS therapist? It's, it's really a mental health 101 kind of chapter there. So the book is available at Deseret Book, De- um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, any of those main retailers. And the audience is anybody who's married, anybody who is dating, anybody who's engaged, anybody who wants to be dating or engaged or married, uh, because we all need to understand what is really required to bring about healthy and happy relationships. So whether you've been married a week or whether you've been married 60 years, we can all improve and strengthen our relationships. Uh, Yeah. Great answers to those questions. I'm excited for the book. I listeners, I haven't read the book. Sometimes I've read um, books that we talk about and so this is a book that I would really like to read. Talk about um, local leaders. Do you like the idea of local leaders reading this book? Because I'm thinking you've just been a resident bishop, and we're not as bishop, and I've been a YSA bishop. We're, not, we're taught not to go clinical, but sometimes I recognize that I could just develop better tools to help people 
without sort of going clinical. So do you encourage local leaders to read this kind of a book as they're helping other couples? Oh, absolutely. Uh, as a bishop, I would use, uh, when I would have couples in or uh, either those that were struggling with their marriage or those that were preparing to get married, uh, I would go through the principles of this book with them and I would talk it through, especially the first, the first uh, few chapters mm -hmm. because I wanted them to understand that uh, marriage is going to be challenging and uh, uh, you have to learn to have some resilience. You have to learn to, to be committed no matter what. And, uh, and then one of the bigger ones is, of course, is learning to forgive. And, and I think all of us have been married for a long time understand that principle. This is great. So I'll just kind of turn it over to you to um, take us where you want to take us in this podcast. Yeah, so thank you. Um, one of the things that, again, that kind of started all of this off was uh, was a quote that uh, Elder Oaks gave back in 2007 in General Conference. And uh, he stated this, he said, a good marriage does not require a perfect man and a perfect woman. Um, it only requires a man and a woman to, uh, to be committed to strive together towards perfection. And that was a foundational quote for us in terms of how we wanted to approach this book to help people understand that, um, that you don't have to be perfect and it's okay. Uh, what we're really trying to do is bring together um, two people, no matter what their backgrounds are, two people that are willing and committed to, to strive towards perfection. And that's what marriage is all about. It's a journey, right? It's not, it's not the end results. And so that's a very important quote that helped us as we began to consider what should be in the book. So that first chapter really is about um, teaching the principle of commitment. And, and Deborah and I, uh, that first two years of our marriage was a really big challenge for us. As, as you can imagine, she's coming in with a background uh, that... Uh, uh, has a little bit of a, some insecurity because of her divorce. And so um, as we as we got together and we, we started to date, um, I could feel some of those insecurities and I was not necessarily, uh, here I am a bachelor being able to do my own thing for 20 plus years. And, and he knew so, exactly how to do uh, everything yes, perfectly. Yes, absolutely, of course. of course, yeah. <laughs> yes. And I'd studied all the books about marriage and I knew every answer there was, right? <laughs> so I was pretty pious. I was pretty uh, self-righteous when it came to our first couple of years of marriage. And I and it took me a lot to, to learn to be humble. And so we are the first to admit to people we fought a lot because we have two very strong people who were coming in and trying to figure out how to become unified. And it was a tough thing. And, and we're very honest to say it was kind of hellish those first two years. And we kind of were wondering what we were doing to ourselves. And so this Elder Oaks quote was really important for us personally, that we didn't have to be perfect to figure out how to, how to make this marriage work. We just had to keep working at it and being humble enough to be willing to take in new information and change behaviors and grow and mature. Yeah. And, and, and let me just say this as part of that, of that quote, uh, you know, what does it mean to be committed and strive together? Uh, we learned that we have to, we have to do marriage on purpose. If we let marriage go into a default mode and just kind of let it flow, uh, it, it, it will start to decline. We have to think every day, what can I do to improve this marriage? How can I improve and grow? Uh, the next thing is, is that um, we can't let it go on autopilot. And then the other thing is, is when we talk about commitment, and this was especially important our first couple of years, 
um, we're talking about this idea that we have to look inside the covenant for the solutions, not, right. not outside the covenant. Right. If we really have committed ourselves to marriage, we do everything we can. We don't go and find solutions to say, well, I'm out of here or I've got to find solutions outside the covenant. It's always about being inside the covenant. It's always about finding those solutions. And so any examples of that? Maybe you'll get to that. Well, in in our own marriage. Right. So so I knew that in that first couple of years, um, Deborah was still struggling to trust me. And, and part of that is because of the, some of the actions that, that, I, that I had before we got married. I walked away from the, relate, from the engagement a couple of times, wow. and so that didn't help. He had been single for so long, his anxiety about making that commitment was massive. And he, it finally took a psychologist who knows how to treat anxiety. <laughs> was that you or yes, somebody else? Yes, of course. To get him, yes. Um, how convenient. And yeah, yet, of course. Honestly... It was an act of faith that day of our wedding. I still was not sure if he was going to show up because his anxiety was so high. And so there was a lot of very difficult interactions with my stress and then him coming in and he knows what to do and, but he's not sure he's fully committed and it was, but it's all theoretical. Oh my goodness. It was just tremendous. (laughs) Right. And, and I love how you talk about it sometimes, honey, when you talk about the idea of, of me, what was I looking for? Right. I was looking. Oh, yes, of course. Um, being single for so long, he'd imagined the perfect wife, which, of course, was himself in a female's body. Right. <laughs> so now here I am. I have my own personality, my own strengths, my own weaknesses, my own flavor. And it wasn't what he had envisioned. But yet he had a spiritual witness that this was right, but he really struggled against that. He wanted me to be like him. And there was a lot of criticism and nitpicking coming my way. And I was really beaten down those first few years. I got to the point where I was like, wait a minute, here I was, you know, a PhD student, single mom holding my life together. I feel really competent. I'm teaching classes. I'm seeing clients. I'm helping people. Like, I think I've got my life working pretty well and I I know how to do things. And, and And I was getting this constant message that I wasn't good enough and I didn't know how to live my life the right way. And he had to correct me all the time. And it was a real challenge. I was really beaten down emotionally those first few years. And he had to learn some tough lessons about backing off and allowing me to be myself in our marriage. Yeah, it was important for me to do that. And and she taught me a lot, quite a a bit during those those years, even though we, we were struggling. I, I think deeply about things and I, I listen and try to understand from the scriptures and from the spirit, what I need to do and how I need to humble myself. And so those were all important things. At, at some point, the spirit told me, listen, Richard, you need to help her understand you're not going anywhere. And so I remember uh, the, the time where I, 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 I went to her and I said, Deborah, listen, you need to understand that I'm not going anywhere regardless of what the fights are or the struggles we have, um, I'm committed. I'm not going anywhere. And I knew that that was a very important principle. And I found that once I really communicated that and helped her understand that from my heart, um, her anxieties, her fears started to finally resolve. And, and, and that was an important journey for us to be able to, to recognize how, how important it was to communicate that. And the data is very clear out there. There's, there's a lot of, uh, data, out in the social sciences that talk about uh, what we call a loyalty trust cycle, that the more you, you communicate 
trusting each other and show that trust, the more loyal you are. And then that cycles up to more trust and then more loyalty, et cetera. Uh, they found uh, that 86% of the couples who, um, who at one time um, said that their marriage was unhappy or very unhappy, if they stuck it out five years later instead of divorcing, those couples that stuck it out five years later, they were very happy or happy in their marriage. So in other words, marriage is, is up and down. And we just realize that that's a part of what we're trying to do. We're trying to thrive and work together and it's a partnership of growth. And so those were some of our early experiences on commitment. And since then we've been married 12 plus years and, uh, and the last 10 have been, have been great. Of course we will, you know, we'll get in a spot once in a while, but rarely. And in that space, we realize that we know how to forgive each other and we need to move forward in it. So why are you so open with your story? Oh, um, you've been divorced and yes. you're both talking pretty openly that things were very yeah. difficult. Yeah. And some would say, well, that's real private. Yeah, and we, if I'm going to be a marriage, if I'm going to talk in this space, I sort of need to have a perfect track record. But here you are kind yeah. of openly in the book and in this podcast talking about some of your not best days. No, I, I see ourselves kind of as the everyman. We're just like everybody else and everybody has their struggles and trials and often suffer privately and feel like they can't speak about it because maybe they're the only ones that are struggling and they go to church and see people sitting on the pew and they, they look great. Right. And so they struggle and we just see ourselves as the everyman and we are willing to put it out there to let people know that they're not alone and it's okay to struggle, that that's part of the journey. So yeah, I think it goes back to, again, what Elder Oaks says, right? That you have two imperfect people that are working towards perfection. And and uh, I, I love that in the church, we're starting to open up a little bit more about some of our, our day in and day out struggles. And that uh, by learning that other people have them, we realize that, uh, that there's no mold. There's no perfect mold of what uh, a member of the church is and that we have to continue to support each other and love each other that way. Yeah. Or what a marriage is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 So um, another part of that first section of that book talks about resilience. And Deborah, Deborah has been uh, an amazing example to me about what resilience is and uh, how she's plowed through a lot of the challenges that she's had in life. Um, and uh, of course, her background as a psychologist and in, in, in understanding what resilience is. So yeah, she's, she's got One quite of, a story. To yeah, tell. Res resilience is the idea of maintaining or regaining positive mental health in the face of adversity. And the research has found that how we personally handle our trials and stresses directly impacts our marriage and the quality of our marriage. So in in this particular chapter, what's very interesting is I actually give personal stories from my life of struggles that I had personally. They weren't struggles with Richard, but how my personal struggles impacted him and the quality of our marriage. So when we talk about resilience, it's not just within the marriage as far as how we deal with our struggles between each other or interpersonally. 
it's how I deal with my struggles intrapersonally within myself. So I, I share a story of just having health problems. And I had these three babies. So after we were married, we had three children back to back because of various reasons. So they're each a year apart. So they're now eight, they're seven, each and six. Year. I just want to make no, sure. they're now nine, I want to make sure I heard seven. that right. You have three kids each a year apart. Yes. Yes. So for those listening, that's getting pregnant three months after having a baby. <laughs> uh, it's not my best years. A lot of sickness, a lot of stress, a lot of diapers, three in diapers at the same time. I was really struggling. So here I was, um, I had two baby boys and I was pregnant with a third that would end up being a girl. And when people would talk to me once they knew I was pregnant, they'd be like, wow, you're so brave. You're so courageous, you know, to have these three babies back to back. And I was always, always say, I'm not sure I'm brave. I think I'm stupid <laughs> because obviously we knew this was going to be a big trial, but I would say, you know, I'm not too concerned. Well, she's a baby because she's going to be immobile and I can handle the other two. My concern is when she starts walking and then I have all three completely unreliable hitting, screaming diapers, you know, and I said, that's when I know my life is going to get really hard. And I'm concerned about that. So now we fast forward, we've had the baby. We'll have these three babies. I'm mothering. And a week after she starts walking, Richard is called to be Bishop. And he was my greatest support with these three babies. He's a very good father, very good husband. And I really began to struggle physically, right? I needed help. And he was now gone uh, to a much greater degree than he already was. So I really started to tank spiritually. Well, so what happens? I wasn't being very resilient. Um, and it started to impact his ability to serve as bishop. We would end up having arguments when he'd come home late on a Sunday night and I'd felt abandoned all day, uh, not only with the three children, but with the other two girls that we have as well. Just a pretty children. honest feeling. Oh my goodness. It was really, really hard. And so we would end up getting into strong discussions or if you might want to call them <laughs> arguments Sunday evenings after he's just served the Lord and it would be very hard. And he'd, he'd be like, I'm just going to go tell the stake president he needs to release me. <laughs> I've never shared that publicly, by the way. <laughs> However, it was very, very hard. So now my inability to be resilient now was impacting him. And not only his ability to serve as a bishop, but now how is he feeling about me? So now our marriage quality decreased those first four or five months that he was bishop. So we had to learn together how to help me kind of bounce back and get stronger emotionally in that. And we had to do problem solving. One of the things we did was just very temporarily hire a babysitter that would come in for a couple of hours, just a couple days a week. And you know what? All I did during that time was I went and did my scripture study. That's cool. You know, he started realizing that as the bishop, he was the man and he could make his own schedule. So he started coming home after church for lunch with the family That's really before cool. he would go back. That's really cool. And just having me and the kids be able to see him and connect with him in the middle of the day, we didn't feel so abandoned because he'd been gone for five or six hours already before church to the end of church. And then we were able to see him and then he was gone again. So just the problem solving and his openness and being willing to support me and help me, I was able to bounce back. Um, there are a lot of things we can do, not just problem solving, but 
things we can do personally, journaling, pondering, meditation, yoga, you know, we can go to personal therapy if we need additional support. Um, Those are all things we can do to work on resilience. One of the things that I continued to say during this time was that I was drowning. And that was kind of a cognitive trap I started putting myself in because I started using that word a lot. I I was drowning. I was drowning. Well, if I keep telling myself I'm drowning, what am I going to do? I'm going to keep drowning. And then one night I had a dream. And in this dream, I was on a big ship like the Titanic and it was sinking. Very interesting. I don't normally have dreams that mean anything. My dreams are usually probably like yours, very probably random and maybe bizarre at times. And in this boat, I was confined in a chair with a seatbelt on, kind of like if I'm sitting on an airplane. And since the boat was sinking, the water level was up to my chin. And I knew in one moment I was going to drown. So as the water level is rising, I'm lifting my chin higher and higher and higher to keep it above the water. And, And there was just a sense of panic, like I am about to drown. And then In that one moment, right before the water level rose, I had this thought that, wait, there's an upper deck to the ship. And all of a sudden I was there and I wasn't drowning anymore. And on the upper deck of the ship, there was Richard and he was rushing around helping everybody and serving. And I just had this strong impression that now that I wasn't drowning myself, I could be patient and allow him to serve and do what he wanted to do. And somehow it would be okay. But I didn't, cool. I didn't have that personal sense of panic that I was drowning and that I could be patient and allow him to serve. And it changed everything for us, everything in our marriage and everything in his church service. And the first change we made after that is I stopped telling myself that I was drowning. And that's when a lot of the problem solving was able to begin because we were open to the problem solving rather than just shutting myself down. If I say I'm drowning, I'm not being open to how to solve the problem. And is that a cognitive, you used a term that I yes. just wanted, cognitive trap. Yes, just, there are a lot of. find that for our listeners. Yeah, a, you can hear something thinking really errors like. or cognitive distortions. Basically, we all tell ourselves things that at times that aren't true, but we buy into it. Things like all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking, something bad happens and all of a sudden your world is ending. Um, maybe you get an A minus instead of an A on a test. And now all of a sudden you're a failure. Those types of things. We've all done it to some extent, but some of us get trapped into some of those distortions more than others. And it really narrows our thinking and our flexibility in our thinking. And it keeps us in, in traps. And that's how in depression, particularly in anxiety, those types of thoughts really become prevalent and people have to kind of retrain themselves and how to learn, think differently. So there's a lot of strategies that I mentioned there, self-soothing problem solving in marriage is so vital to counsel with your spouse and allow them to help you. Yeah, I was going to say exactly that. And and that was, is when I got called as the Bishop, you know, I kind of had this template in my head of how, what my Sunday needed to look like. And, uh, as those first few months, uh, transpired and realized that Deborah was not happy. She was struggling. I needed to figure out a way she's my number one member of the church. Right. And I needed to make sure I, she was, uh, in a better place. And so the, the thing that I learned and we've learned together over the years is, is in bringing God into the marriage. And that is we learned to ponder together. It's not about just personal pondering, but we would, we would talk with each other about something and then we would go off and ponder for a day or two. 
and be prayerful about it and then pray together about it and ponder some more and let the spirit teach us and help guide us in some of those decisions. And this was an example of that. And that was, is that, you know, I started to think as we talked about her struggling, I started to think, well, wait a minute, I, I can make choices about when, what my schedule looks like on Sunday. It doesn't have to be the same long-term schedule all day. And once we did that and made some shifts, I felt a lot of pressure relieved. And then of course, that's kind of when this dream came along that we felt like Heavenly Father kicked in there to help us a little extra in terms of what that what that meant. So yeah. So the the last part of the me section is forgiveness, which is massive. And as we've already illustrated a little bit, Richard and I have given ourselves lots of opportunities to learn how to forgive each other. Yeah, for sure. And and just I'm just going to say one of our favorite quotes is by uh, Ruth Bell Graham on forgiveness. Uh, she's the late uh, wife of Billy Graham. Of course, he passed here recently as well. But uh, she she said, a happy marriage is the union of two great forgivers. And we love that quote. That's one of our, our special quotes for in the book, because it makes a lot of difference, right, in terms of how we can forgive each other and how fast we can forgive. Will you say that again? Uh, a happy marriage is... Uh, um, a happy marriage is, is the, the union, union of, of two good forgivers. Two good forgivers, yeah. Yeah. And in forgiveness, it's not just to say, okay, well, what you've done is fine. Let's move on. It's really to pardon or excuse someone from blame. You're not going to hold it against them anymore. And even in the social science research, they say you need to go beyond that and actually find good feelings for the offender. So it's not just reducing hostile feelings so that you're less angry. But you really have to do the interpersonal, the intrapersonal work um, to to be willing to say, I'm no longer going to hold this against this person, because if I do, it's going to continue mm -hmm. to hinder my regard for them and it's going to continue to damage our relationship. So if you are in an argument and you catch yourself throwing out the remember when you did this. That's a red flag that your forgiveness isn't complete. You're still holding on to something um, or the, well, if you hadn't done or, well, I told you so, those are all kind of red flags that you really have to do some work. You don't always have to work it out interpersonally. I've done work in therapy with people working to forgive parents who have already passed away. So it, of course, working it out with your partner is, is ideal. But there are some things, maybe they're just not significant enough that you need to do that, but you still have to do the work inside and make a conscious choice that I'm going to forgive and, and move on from this piece. So we learned from Nephi that he frankly forgave his brothers. They were trying to kill him. They beat him with rods. I mean, these are really severe things. That's true. <laughs> and and yet he he frankly forgave them. And so that's kind of what we've been working to do there. Elder Lindsay Robbins in a BYU devotional said this, Alma teaches that the Savior suffered for both, for the sins of the offending spouse and for the anguish, the heartache and the pain of the offended spouse. Until the offended spouse is able to forgive, they choose to suffer the anguish and pain that he has already suffered on their behalf. By not forgiving, they unwittingly deny his mercy and healing. And so we ultimately hurt ourselves by not forgiving and by, and of course, then it hurts our marriage as well. And rejecting the atonement, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not just about the offended spouse, but 
that's the offender themselves and and the savior's atonement is for both in regards to that so very yeah. important I think we're ready to move on to part two, unless you have any That's other great. questions Let's about that. Let's move on that. to part two. So part two is the we in marriage. These are kind of the topics that you'll typically find in a marriage book, just written even by non-LDS people. Or if you go to marriage therapy, you're looking at finances and conflict and communication and emotional intimacy and sex. And, and this is what's covered in this section. So the first section we look at is... Um, conflict, eliminating destructive forces and communication and things like that. Uh, Arthur Brooks at BYU's 2019 commencement said, we don't need to disagree less. We need to disagree better. And one of the, the nation's foremost leading experts on marriage relationships is John Gottman. And he talks about four types of conflict in marriage that will literally kill your marriage. Uh, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And the presence of these things, if you have a lot of these things, can predict divorce with quite a bit of accuracy. Criticism is a complaint. We all have to make complaints. Honey, why didn't you do this when you said you would do it? Uh, you need to do that. You have to talk through things. A criticism is when you take that complaint and then you slather it with character assassination and uh, you um, insult and demean your spouse uh, contempt is disgust for your spouse, such as maybe through sarcasm or cynicism or name calling or eye rolling or sneering. Contempt is really damaging because people think that they're hiding it. And yet if you have contempt for your spouse, your spouse knows it. And so does everybody else around you. It oozes out of you. It's really, really toxic. So you want to, if you've got those kind of feelings for your spouse, you really need to catch that and do some work and perhaps some therapy to work through that. Defensiveness is where you justify yourself. And that's a tricky one because you wouldn't think that would cause problems in marriage. You would just say, hey, I'm explaining why I did this. But it ends up becoming a turnaround where when I'm defending myself, I actually end up blaming him and putting it onto him and saying it's his fault. Um, a perfect, beautiful example of how to handle a situation where maybe somebody's not being very nice to you or is name calling or is whatever is the story of Lehi and Sariah in first Nephi. Sariah is concerned her sons are dead and it's Lehi's fault because he's a quote visionary man. So she's kind of name calling him like you're a visionary man and in a negative way, right? Our sons are dead. And if you will read through those verses, 1 Nephi chapter 5, verse 2 through 7, you'll actually see how instead of getting defensive, he validates the kernels of truth that Sariah is expressing. And he comforts her and testifies. And in the end, not only is she comforted, but her testimony of him actually being a prophet becomes strengthened. And it's all because he resisted the impulse to get defensive. So that's a beautiful one that I would encourage people to read. The last one is stonewalling, where you turn out and tune away. And it, it sort of works because you do avoid fights if you're not talking to each other and not engaging, but it ends up avoiding the marriage and killing the marriage. And I think a very damning thing for marriages today is hiding out on one's smartphone. And so we need to be really, really careful about that. Are we sitting in bed at night before we go to bed and we're both on our smartphones ignoring each other? I think that's happening more than we'd probably like to admit. Yeah, and and so uh, another area that um, 
that I think creates conflict that that we need to be really mindful of is the is understanding the difference between preferences and principles. Okay, a preference is something that is the here and now. It's something that a person uh, may uh, have. Like for example, I might like blue. Somebody else might like green. That's not an eternal thing. That's just a personal preference. Uh, principles are eternal. And in marriage, you want to be unified in principles. Um, and, but diversity is a powerful thing in preferences. Um, you know, if you think about the members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, uh, they're all unified in principle, very unified in the doctrines of the gospel and the principles of the gospel. But if you get into that room and you'll see a tremendous amount of diversity, backgrounds, experiences, personalities, personalities, right? And that is also a very powerful thing in terms of, of the diversity of preference and how important it is to be able to come to decision making that way. And that was the message Richard had to learn earlier in our marriage. We were unified in principle, but my preference is the way I lived my life. He just was like, that's wrong. And I I had to learn really very, uh, that valuable lesson that Deborah, I needed to, to, uh, in some way rejoice that she had these, this diversity in her life and the different experiences and that, that I encourage those and, and certainly provide, uh, the support that she needs when it comes to her preferences. We, we, uh, in terms of our personal lives, we are different in many ways as far as our interests and the things that, that we have in background. We don't have a lot in common. <laughs> in terms of preferences, right? But the, the preferences we do have in common, we, we magnify and we try to build off of that. And we also build on the principles that we have in the gospel and that we love so much. So I think that's a very important thing in terms of marriage, helping people understand the difference between those. This is really good stuff. Okay. Uh, finances. Well, finances, that's, that's Goodness gracious. the number one <laughs> marriage killer, right? Uh, the data is pretty clear that when it comes to uh, divorce and marriage, the number one killer is, is, is money. And so uh, that's a really important thing. Number one principle that we, we teach in the book is that, um, uh, money belong, the finances belong to the couple. Um, I don't know how many times as a bishop, I would see people come in and talk to me and only one of the, the spouses know what's going on financially. And the other spouse either doesn't care or got, got locked out by the, by the spouse. And we are very strong proponents of the fact that you need to be able to sit down, budget together, work together, understand what's happening together when it comes to finances uh, so valuable and so important that way. Um, and so um, we, we strongly encourage in the book the principles of provident living, uh, paying, uh, paying tithes and fast offerings is your number one goal. As, as a couple, that's blessed our lives immensely. Uh, uh, having a savings plan, uh, budgeting, all of those basic fundamental principles of finance are very important. Uh, and we have felt God's guidance uh, in our lives financially because we followed those provident living principles. Very important. And finances is an opportunity to learn to become unified. Again, we're trying to become unified in in these marriages. And just like emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, that's where people think about unity. But finances is another opportunity to practice that. In emotional intimacy, boy, this is a big one. And there seem to be a lot of stereotypical gender differences here in, in the amount of intimacy um, women may desire or men may desire. 
Um, emotional intimacy is is really an important. Will you just thing. define emotional intimacy before you get into this, or maybe you're I, I would doing just, it concurrently? I would just define it as a sense of emotional closeness on very real, personal level. Um, communication level, there's a superficial level, which is very safe. And you're just talking about information or scheduling kids. And then you've got personal level and validation level. And that's where you want to be. You want to be sharing real things about yourselves, your hopes, your dreams, your fears, um, your aspirations. You know, Richard has learned to honor the fact that I have different preferences than him. And he actually is a very supportive spouse now. I mean, I, this man is just a wonderful man, but it was a, it was a tough learning curve at first. He supports me in everything that I do professionally as I've expanded professionally beyond just having three babies in diapers. And, um, he supports everything that I do and that sense of shared purpose and his connection there increases my sense of closeness to him. So I, I would just call it an emotional sense of closeness. And, and I would say this, and that is, is that um, I've had to come a long way in support, but I still struggle in, um, in our communication emotionally. Um, I, I typically, and I don't know if that's just a man thing or if it's just me as well, but um, I typically, when she'll ask me about my day, I, I'm, well, this happened and this happened and this happened, but I, I have to realize in that discussion that I need to talk a little bit more. She's more interested in my feelings behind some of that. And, and what, you know, how, how have I struggled? Have I not, what, have I been happy about something or whatever? And I've had to force myself from my personal experiences to kind of talk through that. That makes much more of a connection with her than other. Now, with that said, some of our early experiences were that she would share all the things, right? She would share all of these things and she'd share them four or five times in, in a cycle, <laughs> right? And it would be 45 minutes or a 50 minute uh, discussion. Well, that would usually be my problem solving, right. not just sharing about my day. But I didn't know that, right? So <laughs> I, I had to learn quickly and it took me a long time. I was stubborn enough that, that in those discussions, I, I learned just to listen to her and understand it. And as typically I was trying to answer the problem. Here's what you need to do, honey. This is what you need to do. And I was blinded by the fact that she already knew the answer and that I needed to just sit and listen and let her cycle through it four or five times so that she, and, and when I finally was patient and learned patient and was patient enough, I learned after those, that half an hour, 45 minutes or whatever, that she actually said, dad, this is what I need to do, isn't it? And I said, yeah, that's what you need to do. <laughs> but I didn't need to tell her that she already knew that. And so th those were some early experiences I had to kind of learn. And, and I still have to learn and yeah. remind myself. Of. Brene, Brene Brown says connection is the energy that is created between people when they feel seen, heard and valued and when they can give and receive without judgment. And I, I just think that's a massive important issue about emotional intimacy. Another thing about marriage that we want to point out with this is in order to do this, you really have to continue dating as a married couple. And that can be hard when you have young children. And so sometimes you have to be creative about how to do that. Some of the times our dates were sitting on our deck after the kids were gone to bed here in talking. The Hills. Yes. Yeah. Enjoying the view. We do have a nice view. That's kind of what got us here. Uh, but we need to ex expand our idea of what it means to date. And we also need to expand our idea of what it means to be intimate. It's not just talking and it's not just sex. Um, 
go rock climbing together, go on a hike together, shared purpose, create a project together, like a family history project or working on a calling together. Those types of things all expand intimacy. So with that said, a lot of people are curious, do we actually talk about sex in the book? (laughs) And yes, we do. It's not a sexual how-to book. We don't talk about techniques. We don't go into all the disorders sexually. This is about the spiritual meaning of sex and really how we can allow sex to deepen not only our intimacy with our spouse, but our intimacy with God. So the role of sexual relations in marriage is to create life, but it's to unify husband and wife and it's to unify the couple with God. Um, Jeffrey R. Holland said human intimacy, that sacred physical union ordained of God for a married couple is a symbol of total union, union of their hearts, their lives, their love, their family, their future, their everything. And, um, in Ephesians, we read in 5, 31 to 32, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Um, these are some Christian authors, Wheat and Wheat in 1977. They said this, thus the properly and lovingly executed and mutually satisfying, mutually satisfying is a really important point. One author talks about orgasmic equality. Hmm. This is fully for both the man and the woman. This is not just for one partner. It's not just about satisfying one person's strong sex drive. This is about mutually satisfying sexual union. It's God's way of demonstrating to us a great spiritual truth. It speaks to us of the greatest love story ever told of how Jesus Christ gave himself for us and is intimately involved with us with and loves the church, those who believe in him. In this framework, the sexual relationship becomes two growing Sorry, the sexual relationship between two growing Christians can be intimate fellowship as well as delight. And Jeffrey R. Holland, he likens uh, the sexual relationship as a sacrament. So, again, if there are people who are concerned, you know, if sex is appropriate, if it's sanctioned, if they should be doing that. I've had clients worry that sex is dirty or gross. Um, It's a sacrament. And he says sexual relations is a sacrament, which is any one of a number of gestures or acts or ordinances that unite us with God and his limitless power. So he says sexual union is also in its own profound way, a very real sacrament of the highest order. I love that. A union, not only of the man and a woman, but very much the union of that man and woman with God. So obviously, if we're unifying with God and we're unifying with each other, we need to treat each other appropriately in the sexual relationship. So we need to make sure that we are having charity in the bedroom. Um, Neil Neil A. Anderson said this, Elder Anderson, and he wasn't talking about the sexual relationship, but I think it's very applicable. The happiness of our spouse is more important than our own pleasure. So that's one of the main, the main things that we like to talk about is you have to work together. And this is an area where there's going to be a lot of counseling and a lot of pondering and a lot of patience, but charity must reign 
in the bedroom. We have to be open to each other and really understand one another in that process. And it's an intimate experience in that space. We need to also understand that one of the things we introduce in the book that has been unique is, is, uh, is scheduling sex. Um, in some ways, sometimes uh, there's a lot of anxiety between spouses, uh, you know, as to when this is, when this is going to happen in your marriage. And uh, there's, there's good evidence out there that sometimes if you schedule an evening or a specific uh, time, uh, you both can kind of prepare yourself for that. And it becomes a much, much uh, more satisfying experience in that space too, as well. So that's a unique way to look at it, but it's also something that we talk about in the book. So. Yeah. Our last part of the book is, is um, how to bring the, the in the marriage. And as we talk about the, the we're talking about the Godhead. Um, this goes beyond just kind of what we talk about at church, but a lot of what you'll read there are things that are familiar You talk about at church, but it's about how those doctrines apply in our marriage and how we can use those doctrines to strengthen our marriage. Right. So we talk a lot in Sunday school about, yeah, we need to read our scriptures. Well, what does it mean to study the scriptures with our spouse and then have a wonderful, exciting doctrinal discussion about those principles? So that's what we talk about in this last section. Yeah. And um, so, so we, we take a look at scripture study, the value of it, both personally and how important that is in terms of how it can raise our marriage. So if I'm studying the scriptures in my life every day, as well as, as Deborah, uh, that's going to strengthen us uh, spiritually, which will then help us unify in our, in our interactions throughout the day with each other. But then I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of couples in the church that kind of skip the, the, the couple scripture study. It's easy to just kind of not do that and just do family scripture study if you have children. And we found that our couple scripture study, our couple time together, our couple devotional time together is very valuable. Right now we're... It's one of our favorite things to do because that's where we have our best discussions, I think. And and so we spend, typically the evening after we get the kids down, we spend time uh, either scripture reading or looking at other kinds of church books. Right now, we're listening to uh, the First Vision podcast uh, that's out there for the Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith Papers. And so that's that's been fun for us to do that. It, it, we try to change it up and give us a chance to look through it. We've, we've read Saints uh, together. and Daughters of My Kingdom. Daughters of My Kingdom. So these are kinds of uh, the things that doesn't just have to be this set scripture study every night or every morning or whatever. So scripture study is very valuable as a couple. Prayer is valuable. It's so important as a couple. We talk about it in the book. We say, pray for your spouse, pray with your spouse, and pray for your spouse with your spouse. Those three areas are very important. Pray for your, pray for your spouse on your own, pray with your spouse together, and then pray for your spouse with your spouse. And those are some of the most powerful times when I can hear Deborah praying for me, when we're sitting down as a couple praying together and she's asking Heavenly Father to bless me and vice versa. I think yeah. it's so valuable because it lifts each other. It unifies us in our marriage that way. So very important. Um, I think also uh, we talk about the concept of prophets, how important are prophets in, in the scriptures. And, and uh, I was watching uh, years ago, I was watching a program uh, on TV called uh, um, Earth from Space. 
And uh, it was uh, showing um, how um, plankton in Africa was being whipped up from the Sahara Desert and pushed up into the atmosphere. And that plankton was would catch the jet stream and go all the way over to Brazil. And, and that jet stream would drop all of that plankton down into uh, the Amazon. And um, it, was, it blew me away as to how the, the nutri- nutrition, ancient nutrition of plankton was the current um, food source, food source <laughs> so to speak. for the Amazon. And uh, so that was a unique thing to me. I thought, wow, that's a powerful understanding. And the question was, well, how did we learn that? How did we find that out? You'd never know that, except we, we have satellites. And those satellites, far above the earth, far on top of the earth, were able to kind of watch this happening. And I connected it to prophets. That Love that. The prophets are those that are above the earth, so to speak. They're seeing what's happening and what's that the eye can't see. And, and so we are fully committed to the idea that uh, Heavenly Father has called uh, leaders and have given them keys to help see what typically we can't see spiritually. And that those prophets will, will teach us and help us understand what's happening past, present, and future. And so how does that connect with marriage? Well, right. one of the things that one of the quotes that we had many years ago that was very important for us uh, is a quote by Elder Eyring. Um, he says, sometimes we will receive counsel that we cannot understand or that seems not to apply to us, even after careful prayer and thought. Don't discard the counsel, but hold it close. If someone you trusted handed you what appeared to be nothing more than sand with the promise that it contained gold, you might wisely hold it in your hand a while, shaking it gently. Every time I have done that with counsel from a prophet, after time the gold flakes have begun to appear and I have been grateful. That was a quote that we saw early on in our marriage. And we've kind of held that quote close to our hearts because we realized that there might be some things that uh, that are that are taught or said by a prophet, and there are a lot of people out there that might say, "Well, that doesn't make sense," or it doesn't apply to doesn't me, apply or I'm an me. exception, right? But we've come to realize that we're gonna we're going to follow that counsel, and that we're going as a couple, we're going to work together to grow and learn and understand what are the prophets saying. I love Deborah, her commitment. She loves to listen to the conference talks every day, and I and I strive to do that myself. Not always perfect that way. But I do know that uh, that that, th- that those practices have been very unifying in terms of our marriage. And as I know that Richard will always follow the prophet, that gives me such peace and comfort and a sense of stability in my own heart. And it strengthens my loyalty to him and it strengthens our marriage. And as he's seen me make decisions to align myself with the counsel of the prophets, it has strengthened his love and affection for me because he's like, all right, we're good. You know, she's on point. And, and so that unifies us in that sense of principle and knowing that that's important. Okay. Um, kind of the, the final area that we look at is, is trying to take each of the ordinances and uh, covenants of the gospel and, and applying, how do they apply to, to marriage? 
So we, we look at baptism, how that's applied, and, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, and faith, and, and repentance. Um, those are all important. One of the things that I, we talk about in the book that I really am a strong advocate of is the idea of what is the, what is the oath and covenant of the priesthood, and, and what is um, my role as a, as a priesthood holder, how, do, how does that role work in my home? And uh, we've gotten some wonderful counsel in the last several years about this, this authority of the priesthood and how sisters, um, how, how they have that authority themselves through being set apart for callings and also through temple ordinances and the, the covenants that they've, they've made in the home. And, and one of the things that, um, that I love is understanding that uh, the priesthood must be understood from a perspective that although, although a husband and a wife have different roles, they are still equal in the sight of our Heavenly Father in that regard. Um, by divine design, we've, we know this, that uh, in the family proclamation, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness. And fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. And I asked the question in the book, what does it mean as a husband to preside in righteousness? And this is, this is what I say. The wise and faithful husband who understands the doctrine of the priesthood correctly knows that to preside in the home as an equal, as an equal partner with his wife he will always love and respect his wife's thoughts, revelation, opinions, and feelings. He would not move ahead on any decision without working together in unity with his wife, always in love and respect. When a husband presides, he is a humble servant, looking out for the welfare, respect, and tender feelings of his beloved eternal companion and children. And so I've always felt that's a, such an important principle for me in our relationship, and I've always been sensitive to try to make sure that Deborah has always felt, not felt anything from me where I'm pulling priesthood rank or anything like that. I've always wanted to make sure she feels that I'm supportive of her. So do you want or to tell th that story? Or that you got your PhD first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. That's so you want to tell that story about the, uh, so we had a financial decision we were trying to make. Oh yeah. And I just could not get on board. I wasn't comfortable with what was happening, but I, even though I'm a pretty good talker, usually I couldn't articulate my reasons very well. So he just decided to go ahead and move forward and made a <laughs> phone call to just move forward on this financial deal. And I was panicked. I was like, this is not right. I don't know. What. Well, right after he does that, he goes off to, um, to funeral to, to conduct to a funeral. A funeral yeah. So I am just pacing the whole time. I'm like, uh, and I'm going through in my mind, all my reasons. I go, I got to say this. I got to say this. I, I got this whole lecture ready. She's waiting for me to come home. Right. So I see him come home. I'm in the driveway waiting for him because in the house are a lot of little kids. We can't have a conversation. I'm in the driveway waiting to capture him. And he's kind of like, uh Oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> so I'm all ready for my spiel. I'm like, I'm going to tell him this. I'm going to tell him this. I'm going to tell him this. And I'm like, okay, we got to cut the deal off. And he's like, okay, let me make the phone call. And he calls the guy and turns it off. And I was like, uh, what? And I totally almost got like gypped. Like I wanted to, I wanted to lay into him with all my reasons. <laughs> well, it turns out that when he had left for the funeral, he was driving down the hill to the church where we live and the spirit chastised him and said, Richard, you're not listening to your wife. Listen That's to your wife. Great Listen, to, Listen your wife. to your wife. And so 
I kind of got gypped of me being able to give him all my reasons because the spirit had already corrected him and that he needed to pull the deal and come back and get unified with me to a point where we could both say, okay, we think this is the way that we should move forward. So that's a really important issue. And then maybe issue. even if the deal would have been the right decision, that's not the principle here. Exactly. Right? It's the point is that you're on the same page with communication. Exactly. In the end, and I don't know. It's not like you're looking down the road to try to see who was right or wrong. No. And in the end, I don't know that the deal, I don't know that there was any financial benefit or. Either way. Either way. Like that's I, not it the was, point. Yeah. It really was a lesson about even though I couldn't articulate my discomfort, he still needed to respect that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um. Those were, you know, we get these kind of experiences all the time, every day when we're trying to figure out and make decisions for about our children or about our future, about finances, whatever. It's so important to be able to work together. That's what we call marriage. It's a marriage. It's a partnership working together. And it is a journey. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. You know, the things that he struggled with earlier in the marriage, the nitpicking of me, kind of beating me down emotionally that way. I would say he's gone to the other extreme. He's a wonderful husband. I'm, I'm, I'm really blessed, but we had to suffer through a lot of trial to get to that place where we could feel that way about each other. And as we were working on this book and applying the principles of this book in our marriage even more, because we're like, Oh, we're writing about it. We know we should be doing this and maybe we need to do better. We had a good marriage at the point where we started writing the book. And, and by the end, we had a fabulous marriage and we still do. And we do have our ups and downs. If we do argue now, it's usually something about the kids. Isn't that interesting? It's not usually about us it's, per it's se. It's two about different preferences what, about, what to about do about how we ought to discipline issue. the kids, right? Yeah, about disciplining the kids. I think, I think it's important for us to touch on the last principle of the book about temple ordinances. If I'll let Richard step on that, but before we finish up. Well, so um, obviously um, we've seen um, wonderful things happening in the church when it comes to the ordinances. And um, we love those, those shifts and those changes because it helps unify, I think, couples and, uh, and helps our dear sisters feel uh, the, the warmth that they think, that, that I think we all need to, uh, that they deserve. And uh, when it comes to the marriage covenant, right, temples, um, the temple, the word temple in, in Latin is, is templum. And that is where a place where two, uh, two, place, two lines meet, and it's the center point. If you look on the, on the side of the Salt Lake Temple, you will realize that you have the Big Dipper on that that's etched in stone. And um, when Orson Pratt was putting together these... Um, these symbols for the temple, uh, the, the, the Big Dipper is, uh, we typically think about the Big Dipper and pointing it to the North Star. And the North Star, of course, for a journey is the place where you get your bearings. And that's the temple. The temple is the place where we get our bearings. And so uh, as a couple, um, if, if we're lost, we need, to, we need to get there. We need to be able to go and, and listen and, and uh, one of the things that Deborah and I love to do quite a bit is, is temple ceilings. It reminds us so, so much of our commitment, our covenant, our promises. And so uh, we've got to get to the temple often together in that regard. And if you look in those temple mirrors and that reflection just goes on and on and on, right? It's kind of mind boggling. We try to see all the way to the end and you can't, there's no end. Um, and 
that is a helpful reminder to us that eternal marriage, we talk a lot about temple marriage in the church and ceilings, and we, we use the phrase eternal marriage a lot. And I think it's often used from a perspective of thinking about duration of time, that we're going to be married forever. But we learn in Doctrine and Covenants 19 that eternal is also a, mer- uh, a name for God. And so one of the things we talk about is that eternal marriage is God's marriage or God's quality of marriage. And the kind of marriage required for exaltation is eternal in duration. True. It goes forever and it's godlike in quality. And so we're striving to learn how to create a relationship with our spouse that's godlike and eternal and um, it's possible if we continue to keep ourselves open, not only emotionally in a humble sort of way, but open doctrinally as well to take in new information and, and learn and grow so that we can benefit each other. The ultimate purpose of this, right, is joy. And we can learn to find joy with our spouse, even if we have a chronically difficult relationship we can learn and we can grow and we can move forward in a way where we can find what God has for us there. And if it's not, if it's not going well now, just remember it, it will always get better. You need to find the solutions inside the covenant and make sure. And that goes back, I think, full circle to what we've talked about at the beginning. And that's what Elder Oaks talked about. And that's this, this relationship of marriage is, uh, is a journey of two imperfect people coming together, working towards perfection and, uh, and I think that's, that's the great value of, of why we've written the book, why we felt like the book was so important to be written. Um, and, uh, and so I, I'd also like to make a, a point, which maybe is a little unusual, but, um, we spent a long time on this book and we really feel like God led us in the things that were included here the things that were deleted in the editing process, even up until the last moment before the book went to the printer, there were promptings about, oh, this needs to be changed. Oh, this needs to be inserted. We feel like he helped us write this book and that these are principles and ideas and stories that he would like people to know about marriage and that you can grow and improve your marriage, even if it's struggling. And if you have a good marriage, you can make it a great marriage. And if you have a great marriage, you can make it a phenomenal marriage. But these are principles that will help everybody. And we would like to share those principles with, with everyone. Um, they're helpful ideas. Again, we've brought sociology and psychology research in there to honor both of our PhDs, not just, <laughs> not just the better one, uh, which uh, Richard would claim is his. Uh, we've brought in all the LDS doctrine uh, quotes from President Nelson and President Oaks and, and other church leaders and, and female church leaders as well. We've brought in tons of our personal stories. We'll tell you more about our fights and more about our struggles and also more about times where we've followed personal revelation and how that's actually blessed our marriage and our family. And then you can read stories from a lot of other couples. Our hope is that you'll find something in the book that speaks to you, 
because our personal story may not, may not resonate with someone, but other people's might. So the book is nerdy, but it's also very readable because there's a ton of personal stories and discussion and dialogue in there. So we believe that this book will benefit anybody who is willing to take the time. Yeah, we, we give it as a uh, presence to, uh, at uh, receptions, marriage receptions, right? So we just <laughs> Great idea. And give it we might too. A new, a new couple. Or yeah. Christmas gifts for your sure. married children, right. things like that. But it's certainly a, a, as valuable for those that have been married uh, longer in their life as well. In fact, there are a lot of times where I'll pick it up and re- reread it and go, wow, this is good stuff. And it's been a long time. And, and cool. because we feel like the spirit guided us. And so we really don't take credit for a lot of it. Uh, we're bi- we're biased towards the book, but it's not because we think we're hot stuff. It's because we know that this is the truth that our heavenly father has for us and that he wants us to find joy and love and happiness in our marriages. This has just been a wonderful podcast, just some closing thoughts. And then I'll see if you have any other closing thoughts. Um, as I'm listening to this, I, I just want you as fellow listeners, I'm hearing things that I do well in my marriage and things I have to improve on. And if you're feeling the same way, I'm feeling the same way. And I'm grateful for that. Um, and I'm not looking at this podcast to see the things that um, my wife perhaps doesn't do well on. Um, I'm trying to look at the things that I need to improve on as we both have a common goal in all the marriages to work to improve. And so this has been helpful. But give yourself a measure of grace if you're hearing and cringing a little bit times as you're recognizing what we as individual people need to do our fellow listeners. So that's, and I think the McClendons are teaching grace when they share their own honest marriage. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think they're giving us permission all to recognize at times we're not our best. Um, But as we listen to the principles that they're sharing and we develop better tools. And so that's what I love. One of the things I love about your story. I love that you're divorced (laughs) and that you talk about that. I, um, when I was dating at BYU, um, I ended up dating a few divorced women, and that was off my checklist of my ideal oh, relationship. Oh, certainly, of course, it wouldn't be. And ideal. then I dated a few divorced women. I thought, oh my gosh, what a stupid um, yeah, exactly. assumption I'd made that I would be better off um, without someone who'd been married because they were mature, they were thoughtful, their life experiences. Um, my wife and is not divorced, so I ended up marrying someone not divorced, but. If you're into that checklist mentality in the dating stage, I try to get rid of the checklist and base it on common goals and principles. And you may end up marrying somebody very different than you thought if you get away from the checklist. Maybe you want to comment on that. Well, I I would like to comment. In fact, this relationship almost didn't happen because of a checklist. Um, Richard is older than I am by a fairly good margin. And I was dating some other men at the time that I met Richard. And I asked my little sister, what do I do? I've got these several men, which had never happened in my life before. And first thing she said was, get rid of Richard. He's too old. (laughs) So we need to be open. We need to be open. So I did kind of not pursue it. And he didn't call me back for a while. But she kept looking at that big smile. Oh, yeah. He's got a great smile. He got got braces as as an adult. So he has wonderful teeth and a great (laughs) smile. Uh, And then um, after those other dating experiences didn't really pan out, I was a little discouraged. I was like, I don't want to start over again. This is really hard stuff. You know, dating as a single mom is really hard. And the spirit just came to me and said, what about Richard? He had everything you wanted. 
And that's so cool. I, I contacted him and said, are you interested in another date? And then that's when things progressed. So the checklist can get you in trouble. And I almost lost a really amazing partner. And, and maybe there's some parallels between that and preference versus principle, because yeah. mm-hmm. I love what you teach about principle, Richard, and that's the core unifying doctrine and the core principles that bring a marriage together. And maybe the things that are important in finding your spouse or core principle-based things. And some of that other stuff may prevent us from finding the very person that Heavenly Father wants us to marry. Exactly. Um, I love what you said about when your wife came home and kind of need to cycle through. And even as a YSA bishop, I sometimes felt, and I love your point about listening. I don't think it's a skill attribute that's developed very well in men in particular. And the longer I serve, the more I just kind of let the YSAs talk it through um, and not and kind of resist my toolbox suggestions. And often they would do, they ended up came and coming to the same conclusions that I probably felt that they should come to, but it was just better almost way that they came to it on their own terms. It's their ownership, right? You give them a chance to be the owner of it. And once that happens, then it's more legitimate and gives them more power to do what they need. And what you're showing is a trust. So in those earlier marriage years, he was showing me he didn't trust me to conduct my life in a good, righteous way that would help me on my eternal journey. And he had to come in as the authority or the expert and fix my life for me. So when when you do that for people, um, as you're talking now about listening and validating and allowing them space, you are showing them that you trust them, that that they're mature and that they can do it on their own. And that's an important message in marriage, because if you feel constantly undermined and devalued and not trusted by your spouse, you're not going to feel safe. I love that. The other thing I wrote down is, um, and you may have some thoughts here, and I'm really tenderhearted for those of you that are single and are listening to this podcast. Um, My feeling is things in this book will help you. Um, The principles that the McClendons are teaching apply to you um, in your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, your relationship with God. And we talk a lot about LGBTQ on this podcast. I met with a gay BYU student last night at our home who's celibate, and that's his path. And and I thought about him a little bit in this podcast, that I think the things that you're teaching apply to him and the road he's walking. It's a little lonelier road not to have some of the things that you two share and my wife and I share. But I would think that the principles and the foundational doctrine that you're teaching apply to our single members and can help them. Just any thoughts on... Well, as as we talked about, I was single till I was 45. <laughs> and, uh, you know this road. It's a long time. I, I know what it's it means to be single man in the church. And uh, my... Uh, and to be celibate. Yeah. And yeah. And to, to uh, learn the discipline of being morally clean uh, as a single person. And uh, so there are a lot of... A lot of insights I could share, and we don't have time, but I think one of the things that helped me through the whole process was that I was um, I was engaged in the gospel. I was involved in my ward. Uh, I wasn't hiding. I wasn't trying to uh, go from one one ward ward hop, so to speak, and go from one singles ward to the next singles ward. I felt uh, that I needed to um, to be involved and. I was blessed because the home wards that I was in, uh, they would 
they would use me. Uh, they called me to significant callings. I was an elders corn president cool. as a single man in a married ward. Um, I That's was, cool. Uh, uh, and that was a very important. What a way to feel like you belong. Yeah, it was very important to me there. I was uh, I was on the high council uh, and as a single man in, in, in a married stake. So there, there were a lot of things where I, I just felt like I needed to be engaged. I was reading the Book of Mormon every day. I followed the counsel of President uh, Benson back in 1986 that we needed to be in that book on a daily basis. Uh, so all of the things that I now live, I was living then. And I wanted to, uh, I just lived as though I was going to be married someday and that Heavenly Father would bless me. I was watching super nanny videos. I was doing whatever it took to try to learn to be a good, a good dad, a good father, a good husband. And so part of that, most of that was good, but that's probably what created some of the problems that we had in the first part of our marriage. Cause I had all of this ideology in my head about what it meant to be a uh, you know, what marriage meant and what it was supposed to be. And then the reality struck that once I got married, I learned uh, and had to learn to be humble, to be teachable, to be meek, and to to learn to listen to uh, my Deborah and, and understand how I can be compassionate and serviceable that way. But yeah, um, I think that's some insight that might Great be. Great insight. Yeah. Um, we'll sign off. Um, by half of... Dr. Deborah and Dr. Richard, I don't know if ever you use your doctor titles. The doctors first, McClendon. <laughs> the doctors McClendons. Please check out their book. Commit. I think if you Google commitment to the covenant with the last name McClendon, it'll come up pretty quickly on, and you can read a copy of it. It's a wonderful book and I'm grateful for their work. And just on behalf of all of our listeners, we pray that you, what you're teaching will continue to be heard far and wide in our church and even outside of our church, their foundational principles to help our marriages. And I'm grateful for the work you're doing and I'm grateful for you being on the podcast and grateful for our listeners that tune in and share this podcast. We, as I think, you know, minimum of 7,000 people listen to each episode and some episodes are up in the 10, 20,000. So we're grateful for our listeners and what you're doing to um, share the podcast so wonderful people like the McClendon and their expertise McClendons can be shared. Th- and we'll sign off from another. Ep- we'll sign off from Woodland Hills <laughs> uh, from another episode and of Listen, Learn. Thank Love. you for having us. Yes, thank we, you so much. We're really passionate about this, and we're happy to share this message. <laughs>